Please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1 as we continue with our study of Job. Um, I'm moving on to a different subject uh, here. And I want to start trying to understand how the glory of God is shown in the suffering of Job. So chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is going to get into his suffering and how he glorified God in that suffering. I want to begin reading, and I'm only going to read one verse. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole uh, here, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence come, comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now skipping on to chapter 2. And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, we're not going to be able to cover all of the subject matter of Job's suffering today, and I really want to just focus on a couple theological questions today. But we're turning to the suffering of Job to see how God is glorified in it. What is immediately highlighted by the story of Job is that there are realities beyond our sense experience that are related to and affect everything around us. We tend to look no further than where the light of our physical eyes can see and the sense of our hands can feel. We may even call this methodological atheism. And methodological atheism is just as false of a view of reality as its overtly uh, stated philosophy of atheism. And it's rejected by the scriptures. The Christian starts with the assumption that reality created by God is far more mysterious than our sense experience has access to, and we stand on very good ground in that conviction. Job was the greatest among the sons of the East, but there was a greater reality that was beyond flesh and blood. There is also the reality of the sons of God. And all of that realm that is taken here in verse 6. This was not seen by Job, or by his wife, or by his friends, but it drove the story. And it drives and is the source of meaning in our stories as well. The spiritual reality of the angelic realm And spiritual warfare unseen was the context of Job. Paul would later write in Ephesians 6.12 about principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. 
And, and that is given an effective place here in the trial of Job's faith and has the same effective place in our trials. The devil walks about, according to Peter, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 If we are to serve God at all, we must, of necessity, deal with this unseen realm. All that Job is going to do and how he is going to glorify God through this trial is a response to this greater reality and what is going on in it. But it is a reality that is under the sovereignty of the Most High God, just as much as our physical reality is. The sun, moon, stars do his will, so it is that his will is supreme there. He, the very grace that God gave, God is now going to allow those powers to test. God is, and this is important for us to understand, God is neither absent from this, nor is he indifferent to what Job is going through or is about to go through. Rather, God is the one directing and guiding it to his glory, the glory of his grace, and the good of his servant Job. And we're going to, we are going to be able, hopefully, to take great comfort in that fact. We will view this section under three headings, and it's going to take us several weeks probably to do this. Uh, as I said, my goal is to deal only with the theology of verse 6 of chapter 1 and, the the and chapter 2, verse 1. And we won't get any further than that today. But we're going to look broadly at three headings. The fact, A... The conflict is God's. B, the agent is Satan. And then C, the response is for the glory of God. And we will cover that, uh, those points this week and the following weeks. So let's first, let's just talk about this first point. We see that the conflict of this book is God's conflict. We are introduced to this unseen scene, a behind-the-curtains look of Job's life. The scene is duplicated twice, chapter 1 and chapter 2, as separate stages of his trial unfold. And we're going to look at those through one single lens this week and in the following weeks. Now, let's read again in verse 6 and chapter 2, verse 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Again, in chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, the reason why I want to limit myself to these verses today is there is some theology here that we're going to have to understand. And I know theology can be heavy, but let's work our way through it. The text at large, the Hebrew text that is, is driven by a series of consecutive imperfect verbs that unfold uh, this scene. And that begins right here. 
there was a day. Or rather, there was a specifically designated day or time that the sons of God presented themselves to their God, Yahweh. It's not known if this was customary, just happening at at specific intervals of time, or if this was something that was called for a specific purpose. But here the servants of God come before their God. And the prophets declared something very similar, and I want us to uh, read that. In the days of Ahab, such a council, and I'm going to use that word, that term loosely, was also held in 1 Kings chapter 22. And let me turn over there, 1 Kings chapter 22. Uh, we hear uh, speaking is the prophet Micaiah, starting in verse 19. And it says, And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand, and on his left. And the Lord said, and notice here, the Lord is seeking for his will to be accomplished, which he is sovereignly going to accomplish. And the Lord said, verse 20, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on this manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, un, and he said, that is God, you will persuade him and prevail. Go forth and do so. Now there was be now therefore behold the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning you. Now, God was getting ready to judge wicked Ahab. So we have a similar counsel here and similar results, except it's the trial of the good and just man instead of the judgment of the wicked. And regarding the nature of Satan, Satan it seems, as we will shortly discuss, there is a customary reality here described relating to his resistance of God's elect. He is, in Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren. And we're going to see his role, that being fulfilled here. Now, let us answer a question. Who are the sons of God in this text? The B'nai Ha'elahim. Now, the contrast between the children of men, the sons of the east, and these are plain in the text. One is terrestrial, and the other is celestial, to use the terminology of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Such a division is not unique at all among the big biblical writers, and we can spend a lot of time just drawing that out. But, again, as we stated, there is an angelic realm. And here in Job, that contrast is clear. The title is Sons of God, here in Job. It's used three distinct times, and we read two of those, and the other is God himself speaking in Job 38.7, where he says, when the, son, 
when the morning stars sang together, speaking of his act of creating the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So we're talking about beings that were present when God founded the earth. Two questions arise about this distinction, this nominal distinction, the name, sons of God. Is there an ontological relationship between God and the angels? What do I mean by ontology here is being, is the being of angels similar to the being of God? The Mormons would say so. <laughs> in fact, they have, uh, have an entire council of gods in their faith. And the second question is, does this title help build a broader understanding of angelology? The study of angels. To the first question, the title appears biblically, broadly biblically, that is, to negate ontological sameness. The being of angels is not the same as the being of God, and that is not what this title is intended to say. So, angels are creatures, vastly different than their creator. Uh, and we can show that God is unique ontologically in many ways. Isaiah 45.5 is uh, where God says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other God. Uh, there, uh, God is ontologically unique, and anybody that teaches that angels are ontologically similar to God, are doing so uh, against the declaration of scriptures. There are some that wish to imply some kind of sameness to angels by saying that this is what is described by the psalmist in Psalm 82, where it talks about a council of gods, or literally a congregation of the El. And that L could mean God, gods, or simply mean the mighty. And in Psalm 82, those are called gods and called the sons of the Most High. But even if that was a valid reading of that psalm, the difference between angels, if that's what was intended there, uh, and God would still be clear. Whoever they are, God judges them in Psalm 82 and brings them to their death. So he's sovereign, they are not. However, no being could ever be a counselor to God. Isaiah 40, 13 tells us that. Paul reiterates it in Romans 11. And the context of Psalm 82 tells us that the psalmist was using poetic language and titles to describe human judges. Human judges that in the third verse of that psalm were responsible to do justice to the orphans and the widows. And they saw themselves as being exalted in their positions. And God, of course, says that he would judge them. Christ himself said of that very same text that he was talking about those to whom the word of God came and who the word of God was entrusted to. And that's John 10, 34 and 35. 
It's clear then that such a title is not to be exclusively applied to angels. A similar title, Sons of Yahweh your God, is used of the elect nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 14.1 and is mirrored in the New Testament by the title Technatheu, Sons of God, that is applied to the church. 1 John 3, 1 and 2, for instance, Beloved, now are we, technatheu, the sons of God. So the phrase does not intend an ontological relationship or sameness. In fact, there is only one son of God that is uniquely God's son, the monogenes that proceeds from the Father, John 1, 18 the one that is in the bosom of the Father, the monogenes, John 3.16, the only begotten Son. I will, in fact, argue shortly that the Son is Yahweh to whom the angels are subordinate to in our text, but I'll get there, there in a second as we just take a theological view of this. He's the unique Son of Psalm 2. And all the angels worship and are subject to him, as in our text, Hebrews 1, verse 6. The subordination of our text makes the idea of sameness between the angels and God very foolish. What do we see the sons of God doing in our text? They present themselves to him as servants. And that's clear elsewhere as you, as you study angels in the scripture. Uh, the, so the term bene elim, sons of the mighty or sons of God, in Psalm 21, it reads like this. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty. There it is. Bene elim, sons of the mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Again, as Psalm 89, verse 6. For who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? There is no sameness. So the title of Sons of God does, however, describe a relational truth. We might say it is a relationship of God's own free and gracious choosing. Just as it was with Israel, just as it was with the church, here it is with the angels. I would. I'm, I don't think I'm going out on a limb too much to use the phrase that Paul himself used in 1 Timothy 5.21. These are holy angels. These are elect angels. This fits with similar Old and New Testament uses of the term in regards to Israel and the church. However, that leaves one outline text that should be considered, and I'm not going to be able to give you answers to it, but we still should mention it here as we're talking about the sons of God, and that is the sons of God as mentioned in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now the question is, is that elect angels or is that elect men? And a few passing comments by me is not going to resolve any turmoil that that text causes. Both are possible interpretations of that text. 
There are a couple big hurdles, though, and I lean away from the idea that it's speaking of elect angels for two reasons, and I'm just going to throw, there's more reasons I have, but we're not dealing with that text, we're dealing with Job. <laughs> um, one, and I just consider these great hurdles for that idea, the text would be declaring sinful acts of angels elect of God without anything in the context to introduce their presence or their judgment. It's rather mankind that God judges in that text. Secondly, how these angelic beings were able to marry and bear children, something Christ said was contrary to their nature, as in Mark 12.25. That's, that's two big hurdles that uh, people that maintain that view would say. I, would, therefore, would lean to this idea that they are speaking of an elect people of God, of whom only a remnant were truly saved, and the rest apostatized in that text by taking strange wives that aided in their apostasy. In my mind, that would be more readily flow from the context and fit other similar Old and New Testament themes. But whether where you land on that has no bearing on how we should approach this title, Sons of God. The Sons of God here represent Job the angels of God, the elect angels of God, those he has related himself to as a covenant God to them. And what do we learn about them? We learn that they are servants or ministers of God here in Job. They came before him. They presented themselves to him. They praised and bowed before him. The angels sing his praises just as they would in a similar scene in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. They are not there as a counsel to advise, though they may relate to him as they did in our, our text in 1 Kings. For he humbles himself to behold the things in heaven, as in Psalm 113, verse 6. But what are they there to do? They are there to do his will. Hebrews 1.7 tells us, God makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Again, Psalm 103 verse 20, Behold the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto him the voice of his word. The verbal phrase here in English, to present themselves, is an infinitive verb form that's used as an intensive and in, a, in an intensive and reflective way, a hithpale. The verb carries the idea. It carries the idea of them stationing themselves before their God, ready to serve as courtiers to His majestic throne. We see this same idea in Zechariah's apocalyptic vision of the angels, which he says in Zechariah 6.5, Go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The same verbal form. Angels, then, are not equal to God and are not objects of worship. Even Satan, in our text, who longs for work to be worshipped himself, must can't come before the Lord as a servant 
for the same verbal form is used and applied to him in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says he presented himself before the Lord. So, what are we saying here about angels? Anyone who seeks to worship angels or adore angels do so ignorantly and sinfully. Do not beguiled in the involuntary worship of angels, Paul said in Colossians 2.18. Or, as the angel told John when he ignorantly tried to bow before him, do not do so. Worship God alone. Now, we come to the grand subject. And that's the Lord. The Lord on the throne. Doing his will. Again, it says... The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh. They stand before Yahweh here. It's interesting, the use of the divine name here in Job. Yahweh. That's the covenant name. Here, I take it to mean that he's the covenant God here in Job. He's Job's God. He is the covenant God of the elect angels and Job, apparently. The question arises, though, in the use of this name, Yahweh, could this name have been known to Job and its author? Why does that question arise? Well, because we have a text written by Moses in Exodus, Exodus 6, 3, and 4, where Moses states, speaking for the Lord, I am the Lord. Yahweh, that is, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. So here's the problem. Job was before Moses, and here uses the divine name. However, if only a surface reading of that text in Exodus is given, then it's a contradiction in the scriptures. Because Abraham knew God as El Shaddai, the mighty God, and he knew him as Yahweh. Genesis 15:6. Moses or Abraham believed Yahweh, and he called upon Yahweh in Genesis 17:1. And it was known by the elect from the very beginning. It was the words of Eve in Genesis 4.1. The Lord, Yahweh, has given me a son. And again, 26, it was the sons of Seth that began to call upon Yahweh. There's only one covenant God of the scriptures, and it's Yahweh. So, the, so we have to rather interpret our meaning of the checks in Exodus differently. The obvious meaning to me is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not have the appearing and the experiential knowledge of that covenant-keeping God as those in Exodus who were about to see God bring them into the promise. Job, however, knew this covenant God and also will know him in keeping his covenant. Here's another interesting feature about the Yahweh of this or Yahweh in this text. Something that New Testament Trinitarian theology would later shed great light upon. Yahweh is God upon the throne here. But Yahweh will then speak of God in the third person 
where he's going to say in verse 8 that Job fears God. And Satan is going to answer and speak of God in the same way. Now, there is more to the God that Job feared, if I may say it this way, than the appearance that was, being, that was had here on the throne. The angels presented themselves in worship to Yahweh, and yet there was something more about Yahweh that they could refer. The devil will try to get Job to stop fearing God and curse Yahweh, to whom he spoke directly to his face. We then have a very similar phenomenon that appears in the Old Testament more than once. One of those instances is in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19.24 Then the Lord, then Yahweh, rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So we have... Yahweh upon earth, raining fire from he- from Yahweh in heaven. In that text, and what do we? What is what, what does this tell us? It tells us that prior to the advent of Christ, that changed everything for Judaism, first and second temple Judaism, and the tradition that arose from the Torah, had no problem with mysterious plurality in the one true God. Christ himself brought that, that out about whose son is he, where he quoted David's words. The Lord, Yahweh, said unto my Lord Adonai. David's Lord had a distinction from the Lord in heaven. So who was on the throne here? I have no doubt that this is the Son of God that the angels are presenting themselves to. The word and revelation of the Father of John 1.1, 1, 1, the one to whom the angels of heaven must worship in Hebrews 1.7. He's the occupant of the throne. It was also Christ on the throne in Isaiah's vision when he saw the Lord, Yahweh, high and lifted up. And John tells us that he, the angels saw Yahweh, or rather Isaiah saw Yahweh. Just... An interesting note, there's a higher, or to to quote, or to paraphrase Hamlet, there's a higher reality to God than our philosophies can cover. Then there's one other thing that we deal with theologically. Something else is introduced in our text. Represented in the Hebrew with another consecutive imperfect verb, and Satan came also among them. This is the introduction of the conflict of this book. And the conflict is God's, not Job's directly. What happens to Job is what flows from the conflict, or rather the warfare, that is introduced here in Job 1.6. Here we have the introduction of an enemy. The writing of Job being before Moses' writings, it appears to me, at least, to provide context and understanding for who the serpent was in the garden. Here is the one opposing God in the beginning, and now is opposed to the work of God in the life of Job. He's the same one that opposed Christ on earth, 
resisted the grace that was given to Paul when he says a messenger of Satan has come and by my grace is sufficient. Works among the lost right now in Ephesians 1, 1 or 2, 1 through 3. Sought to have Peter. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, to have you, and is presently walking the, among us, seeking whom he may devour, according to Peter. John in his Apocalypse collapsed all of these into one single text in his description of the reality of, of spiritual warfare. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. We could trace the activity of this enemy of God from Job to Revelation. The name Satan is marked off 17 times with a Hebrew article, uh, mostly here in Job, but also in Zechariah. And the prophecy of Zechariah shows similar activity of Satan resisting the work of God. Zechariah chapter 3, 1 and 2. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. Notice the Yahweh and Yahweh there. Oh, say, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Speaking of Joshua. Christ intimated that Satan had, cons had a consistent opposing kingdom against God. And that kingdom has stood. Mark 3, 23 through 27. These are the principalities and powers that we wrestle against, according to Paul the devil and his angels Matthew, that will that God has prepared hell for in Matthew 25:41 and by the way Jesus has triumphed over them by his cross in Colossians 2:15 and our victory over him is sure and we will bruise his head soon according to Paul in Romans 16:20 the name Satan simply means adversary, and therefore is presented as here as opposed to God. The word Satan is also used as an infinitive verb four different times in the Old Testament as an accuser. Psalm 109 verse 6, for instance. After all, he is the accuser of the brethren in his opposition to God. So, here is evil and its tempter. Now what can we say about the nature of Satan here as we draw things to a close? We can say about him the same things we say about the sons of God. He was the anointed cherub of Ezekiel 28, 14-16, and he fell according to Jesus in Luke 10, 18. I beheld Satan as lightning fall. The word also in our text, gam in Hebrew, separated him from the elect angels of God. But the context tells us that he is the same ontologically as they are. He's just not holy and not described in the relational terms as son. He is in their midst, though. He is subordinate as they are. 
After all, he has to present himself just as they do in chapter 2, verse 1. And he can only do the will of God. He is just like the lying spirit of 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings 22 that we read already. And he stands in opposition to God here, and the conflict is set. Now, the fact that evil itself is subject to the sovereignty of God is inherent to the rest of the reading and should be a great comfort to us as we close our doctrinal understanding of what's going on. Even in our understanding of the doctrine of Satan and the doctrine of demons, we draw comfort that our God is Lord over all. And we will flow from our understanding theologically of this very thing. As God uses Job for his glory, the glory of his grace, and for the good of Job. Lord bless. Thank you.